0: This is part three of a multiple-part series on the Gulag. Quick disclaimer, this episode contains language and some content that listeners may find disturbing. Thank you for listening. I remember when I was ten years old, and my older sister went to interview her friend's grandfather, who was part of the landings at Utah Beach during the Allied invasion of Normandy during World War II. And I remember being so excited, because I was this Time I was captivated by the Second World War. You know, I had books with illustrations and pictures. I loved the museums and the movies and the documentaries. I played World War II outside by myself. I reenacted the Normandy invasion with my little Legos. And so, being able to listen to someone who was actually there and participated in the events, you know, I only read about, what absolutely fascinated me. And as he told, his story I remember feeling how real this history was Uh, I knew the narrative I understood the tactics I recognized the uniforms but to me it was up until this point just a story I was so distanced from it but hearing this man talk about the the landing uh, at Utah Beach from his perspective slapped me in the face and I recall being able to feel the anxiety and the, the uncertainty the fear the sand on my boots and the smell of the salt water in the air it wasn't just a set i built out of legos it was real so that's what i want to do in today's episode i want to take the gulag which i am separated from by an entire ocean and many 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 years and i and i want to portray it in the realest, rawest way possible and uh get a better feeling for these events through the stories and the, and the descriptions of from the actual people that were there. So for this episode, I'm going to go through the human experience of the gulag, the prisoners, the guards, the camp bosses. There's a lot to cover, most of which I won't have time to get into, but I will try my best to portray all the possibilities from the prisoners' transport to the to the camp, to his attempt of escape, and all the stuff linked in between. So to start, I want you to imagine you're in your kitchen, and you maybe have a radio and some tea on the table, and you look outside because you hear some trucks pull up. You squint just a little because they seem unfamiliar to you. And this, what I just described, was the setting that a lot of future prisoners found themselves in. Lots of the NKVD, the NKVD was the the name of the secret police during this time, from 1934 to 1946, they were called that. But lots of these NKVD officials would show up and just tell you, hey, what's going on here? Look, a little problem. We need you to uh, get in the truck so that we can take you somewhere, where we can have a little chat. Don't worry, everything's fine. We'll be back soon. There's no need to pack a bag or bring food or anything. You know, that's what would be told to these future prisoners, and most of which, so they would just most would just go off with them, expecting to return to their families by dinner or something, of course. But this often would not be the case. Some of them would not. Some of these prisoners would not see their families again. Applebaum writes of Georgi Zinov's wife, who immediately started packing his bag when the NKVD arrived, because she knew better when they told her that he would be back soon, she replied, quote, those who fall into your hands don't return quickly, end quote. Remember, you could be arrested for so, so many different reasons. Most of the time, we're still, tri- you, most of the time, you were still tried under the law, right, within the system, but of course, that doesn't make it any better. Applebaum, again, writes, quote, the fact that the repressive system was legal does not mean that it was logical. On the contrary, It was no easier to predict with any certainty who would be arrested in 1947 than it had been in 1917. True, it became possible to guess who was likely to be arrested. During the waves of terror in particular, the regime appears to have chosen its victims in part because they had for some reason come to the attention of the secret police. A neighbor had heard them tell an unfortunate joke. A boss had seen them engaging in suspicious behavior. And in larger part, because they belonged to whichever population category was at the moment under suspicion. End quote. You often see when the Red Army is making its way through Eastern Europe during the Second World War, the population category was often German POWs, Ukrainians, Polish people, whichever nationality there was. But regardless of who you were after your initial arrest, they would transport you to a prison, and lock you up there along with many many others and while you were there they would lock you up and, and search every part of you to make sure you had nothing to kill yourself with because they believe that some people would go to that length to hide their activities Jofi who was the daughter of one of the leading Bolsheviks says quote, I remember how I was struck by the degradation and absurdity of all of this what could, what could a person do with hairpins Even if the absurd idea popped into someone's head to hang himself by his shoelaces, then how could this actually be done? They simply had to place a person in a revolting and humiliating position, where one's skirt would fall down, stockings would slip, and shoes would shuffle. End quote. Sometimes you would be in a tiny cell, or you'd be thrown into a big cell with a big group of other people. They were always lit up, I think, most of the time, so that guards could have uh, this transparency. They could always see what was going on. And these cells were cold, but you couldn't put your hands under the blankets or the guards would shout at you. You know, like, oh, what are you doing under there? If you needed to use the restroom, well, you're, you, you're in luck because there's a communal bucket in the corner of the room. Communication was also hard as well since you were always being watched, especially by these prisoners called informers. And they were not just in these prisons, they were often in the camp, labor camps as well. They're very famous throughout the Gulag. Uh, now, you never knew who an informer was, but you could be sure that in about every single cell, you could be, there, was a, there would at least be one. And their job was to snitch to the authorities if they ever you know heard something suspicious. And usually they took these deals because they got something out of it. Maybe a shorter sentence or a better position or you know whatever but but sometimes you could tell who it was and sometimes not but once you were arrested and you were sitting in a cold dark cell for hours you would finally be taken to interrogation interrogation usually consisted of the secret police trying to justify their arrests now depending on when you were arrested it would be quick and easy or long and hard if you were arrested during a time of mass arrests, you could probably expect your interrogator to keep it to a minimum because, you know, back on his desk, he's got the, the case files stacked high. You know, these prisoners are coming in. You know, I got I got a job to do. I can't spend too much time on one or, or the other. Maybe only if, if there was something, you know, special or, or, or there were less cases, then you could expect your interrogation to be cruel. So you would see them try to... Force information out of you, whether you whether it was confessing to you know a secret spy organization, or confessing to you know you're, you're being a fascist or you oppose the regime. Okay, you know this is even worse for you know because they couldn't. One one account said the guards said they couldn't release these people even if they were innocent because that meant that they were arresting innocent people. That wouldn't look good for the regime, would it? But within their system. They would need something to put down on the books, and they had a variety of ways to extract or force this information from you. Usually it was somewhere in between this bureaucratic indifference and absolute sadism. One example of their tactics is from this theater director named Vasilivad Merhold. I apologize if I'm getting these names wrong. Uh, what can you do? I guess someone can correct me, but uh, he wrote a formal letter of complaint where he said, quote, "The investigators began to use force on me, a sick sixty five year old man. I was made to lie face down and then beaten on the soles of my feet and my spine with a rubber strap. They sat me on a chair and beat my feet from above with considerable force for the next few days." When those parts of my legs were covered with extensive internal hemorrhaging, they again beat the red, blue, and yellow bruises with the strap, and the pain was so intense that I felt as if boiling water was being poured on these sensitive areas. I howled and wept from the pain. Uh, There were other ways of torture as well, including sleep deprivation, which could often last entire weeks. And that is absolutely insane to me. So there was this physical torture, but then there was also the psychological. But after your interrogation, you had the option of being sent to a labor camp. Now, if you got there in one piece, of course, uh, then you could probably count yourself pretty lucky because transportation was just another roll of the dice. And, you know, these conditions were pretty bad. Now, for some... Most really, you were going, these were not overnight trips to you know the next camp down the road. You these would often take weeks or, or months sometimes because you're traveling all the way across the entire continent. So, remember, when I'm telling you that these transport conditions were bad, you were stuck there for a very long time. And the first option that you had was, and you know, I don't know if I can really call these options because you didn't have much of a choice, but. But one way to reach your destination was in what's called a Stolypin, and these were carriages on a train, similar to like an ordinary third-class carriage, except from the pictures that I was looking at, you seem to have been barred into your room. So imagine something like the Hogwarts Express, except uncomfortable, metal, and overly crowded with no bathroom, and you're barred into your little room. And if you needed to use the bathroom in the first place, you would have to wait for the guards to take you out. But often they wouldn't because, you know, that just adds to their jobs. Sometimes water was not even given to the prisoners because to the guards, the guards' rationale, well, you give them water, then they'll have to use the bathroom. So if you don't give them water, then we don't have to take them out as much because they don't have to use the bathroom. And because of that, Applebaum mentions... That a lot of the memoirs describe the stench of urination and, and defecation on the trains. It was just overpowering. But another option that you had, if you didn't want to take the Stolypin, was it, you could take a cattle wagon. And depending on how you, re- you reacted to these previous conditions, this option may be for you. Because there was, it was a little bit more open, right? Because these were intended originally for animals. And Applebaum again describes that they also had their own negatives, particularly with regards to the bathroom. So if you have a small bat bladder, I'm sorry, both these options are not the best. But if you needed to go number one or number two, well, there was a hole on the floor of the bottom of the wagon, just big enough for, for you to go. But sometimes when these trains were traveling up north in the winter, or at some point, these holes would get frozen over. So one prisoner said, in response to that, quote, "So what do we do? We piss through a crack between the floor and the door and chat into a piece of cloth, making a small neat parcel, and hoping that somewhere they would stop the train and open the door so we could throw it out End quote like I said, you were always sort of rolling the dice with your own mortality. Applebaum writes a quote from an excerpt about a small child." Quote, Some days were very hot, and the heavy smell in the cars was unbearable, and a number of people fell sick. In our car, one two-year-old boy ran a high fever and cried constantly from the pain. The only help his parents could get was a little aspirin, which someone gave to them. He grew worse and worse and finally died. At the stop, in an unknown forest, the soldiers took his body from the train and presumably buried him. The sorrow and hopeless rage of his parents was heartbreaking. Under normal conditions, and with medical attention, he would not have died. Now no one even knew for sure where he was buried. End quote. So there is much, much more happening on these trains, including starvation and rape. And some of these accounts I won't really get into, one for the sake of time, but two, because it is very disturbing. Not that what I just discussed was not disturbing, but I mean these were uh, especially with regards to the rape. They were um, they're, they're quite extreme. So, if you did manage to survive the uh, arrests, the prison, the interrogation, and the transport, and you finally arrive at your new home, some sort of labor camp, somewhere likely to be a specialized. So somewhere like maybe an oil place or timber or gold or whatever, depending on, you know, the camp. Not all, all camps were created equal. Some were harsher than others. Some had better conditions. It really just varied. But there were a lot of similarities across most of these camps. And to start, once you arrived at your camp, you'll see some sort of slogan. Similar to like the Auschwitz slogan, work sets you free type of thing. But probably for the Soviet Gulag camp, something more, you know, to do with the motherland but you know, once you get in there, they'll wash you and they'll shave you. One, because lice was always a huge issue in all of these camps. That's one of the kind of overarching similarities they have. There's tons of accounts of lice crawling in the seams of their underwear or infesting their blankets. Just Lice, was, lice thrived in these very unsanitary conditions. And the prisoners, most of the time would uh, be given some sort of standard clothing some one-size-fits-all sort of thing and I think I remember a lot of these prisoners keeping their uniforms clean was 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 um, very good for them I think because you know it provided them with some sort of dignity I suppose but uh, if you were maybe up north or somewhere you maybe get better clothing Maybe something warmer, like a hat, although some government investigators make, make made an account that they were really never quite adequate enough. And, and after you receive your clothing, Applebaum then writes of one of the most crucial times in a prisoner's experience, and that was Selection. And this is sort of where your fate is sealed, because you could get here, you could get at Selection, you get a poshi, or a posh, cushy job like a doctor or a camp chef, or you could be sent to the mines. Now, getting these jobs, you know, like a good job, was huge. So, you know, technical ex- experience was always a plus. But, you know, remember from part two, there were different degrees of prisoners. There was the political prisoner, you know, who could have a short five year sentence or a 25 year sentence. And then there were the criminals often prided themselves on getting longer sentences most of the time. Sometimes they would get to go out of their way to get longer sentences. But it was sort of the official policy from the central administration that political prisoners, especially those in for counter-revolutionary crimes, were not to be given more, uh, higher important jobs because the central administration felt that they could not be trusted. You know, they could sabotage but the truth was these political prisoners were often the only ones who could read or had a little bit of education or had the technical experience to get the job done. And the criminals often didn't care or, or couldn't read or didn't want to do it in the first place. So while officially the official policy was that political prisoners were doomed to t- chopping trees, they were actually in reality put in the important jobs most of the time. or or maybe when an inspector from the central administration arrived they would then be taken or removed from that position and then put there after they leave so during an inspection they would uh, during or during selection they would often look you up and down see your strengths see your weaknesses and put you to a job or often you could sort of swindle your way into a job if you had connections this was how mostly it was done for example, say you were Jewish and there's already a, a, a firmly settled group of Jews in the camp, then they, could, they would take you in and they would supply you with a good job and take care of you for a little bit. So It was, it was always very important to have these connections within the camp. Uh, but depending on how you did your job and how well you fulfilled your norm would translate to how much food you got. Remember, they had the idea of rational work, where the more work you got, the more food you received. Which we will see, some prisoners often say was a death trap, because the food that you were given was never really enough calories. So the harder you worked, the more, uh, the more you sealed your own death. So it was always this competition between most prisoners to do the least amount of work for the most food. Uh, but the norm here is also is very central to the camps, and the norm is the output of a particular camp or a prisoner that is supposed to be reached. And it is often the reason that these camps make their prisoners work so hard because the central administration sets these norms to be unreal- unrealistically high. Often I think, you know, I might be wrong, but the reasons that the norms were so high was to be camps because camps would just sort of lie about their output. So the central administration would see, you know, oh, well, okay, it looks like they reached their norm. Okay, well, it looks like they can, you know, do a little bit more, so we'll raise it even higher. And this just got to the point where expected output was astronomically high. And I think the reason a lot of camp bosses didn't say, well, well, no, we can't do this, was because the ones that said that often would lose their jobs. So another reason you'll see camp bosses going against you know official policy and putting the political prisoners in these important technical positions was because you know they have a norm to be filled. They can't exactly always adhere to official policy so you're you're at selection, and you've got your job, and depending on what it was, your chances of survival would go up, or they'd go down. But it's Monday morning, and it's your first day of work. Your work day is incredibly regimented; there was little freedom to do what you wanted, but that really depended on what camp you were in. Some camps allowed prisoners to move more freely around certain designated zones, or if you gained the trust of a camp boss, you would be given special privileges. I think Applebaum writes of oh, one prisoner. I think became friends with this younger sort of shyer conservative girl, and they become become quite close. but after a while they become separated, and a few years later they they meet again and they lock eyes and the the man could very clearly see that she was sleeping with the camp boss, you know she had new shoes seemed very well fed, and they lock eyes, and she sort of pretends not to even know him. This is sort of, I guess, a, 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 a tactic of survival, I guess it could be seen that way. But there were, you know, many ways to, to kind of gain trust. It didn't involve always sleeping with somebody, but there were many, many ways. But not only could your day, your day was pretty much out of your control, but where you could go was also out of your control. You would not You would often be confined to certain zones, all surrounded by barbed wire, fences, guard towers know remember the guards they can they are told that they can shoot any sort of prisoner that tries to escape. like I saw one account that a guard told a prisoner to stand in what was called no man's land, which was a piece of land sort of out on the outsides of camp where if a political or uh, excuse me if a prisoner was sent there or not sent there but if he tried to cross it, then that was sort of considered an escape so one some guards told a prisoner to stand there that, so that they could shoot him. Some other like other camps like really just depended, but these camps, you know, had very little enclosures because, where they had very little sort of barricades to keep prisoners from escaping because some camps were just in these environments where really escape was there was just no point to it. Uh, You know whether it was sort of weather conditions or you were separated by this huge body of water, you know. Or you maybe just starve to death because there's you know there's nothing out there. It's just empty wilderness. So there's really just no point to waste bullets on prisoners that escaped sometimes because you know the nature will take care of them. Kind of you know reminds me of the Alcatraz prison escape. Reminds me of uh, you know that movie or I guess it was a an actual event. So yeah, you escape. Well, good luck not not drowning so you would work for most of the day and this usually got worse around World War II when demands uh, the norms were super high some prisoners would have to stay out all night until they fulfilled their norms so rest days were also very rare although they were supposed to be given I think they were prisoners were supposed to be given a rest day every 10 days or so it sort of dependent on the, the policy of the time Gustav Erling writes quote, according to regulations Prisoners were entitled to one whole day's rest every ten workdays, but in practice, it transpired that even a monthly day off threatened to lower the camp's production output, and it had therefore become customary to announce ceremoniously the reward of a rest day whenever the camp surpassed its production plan for one particular quarter. Naturally, we had no opportunity to inspect the output figures or the production plan, so that this convention was a fiction which in fact put us entirely at the mercy of the camp authorities. End quote. And once you finished your workday, your conditions where you live were not exactly a five-star hotel. You could venture into your barracks, which usually was overcrowded and smelled terrible. You probably slept on a wooden bunk with no pillow, surrounded by other prisoners. Sometimes you would be so squashed up that if you wanted to roll over in the middle of the night, well, everyone else would have to roll over. Some prisoners account waking up with their hair being frozen to the bed so they can't move bathroom visits were equally terrible usually you had to wait until the morning because any sort of urination or or whatever would add to the stench of the barracks but like I said earlier it really depended on your job you got at selection because some jobs had better privileges doctors usually had these privileges they slept in their hospitals which consisted of lots of clean sheets pillows running water and such if you maybe were a skilled craftsman you could maybe expect to sleep in your workshop which usually had better conditions than the barracks really right it just depended now the bathrooms if you did in the middle of the night if you did go out to a, a bathroom they were often pretty bad because everything was just so infested with lice and, and you know i think it's important to note remember that any sort of improvements to camp life usually were due to the camp bosses seeing it as an economical like incentive in a way because you know if too many prisoners are dying of diseases or are being put out of work well then that's not good for camp output so bathing in a bathroom right was seen sort of as a way to fight off diseases and and filth and for these camps food was also pretty terrible unless you got a job in the kitchen in that case it was sort of understood that stealing was part of the job really stealing all over the camp was just sort of expected some prisoners maybe that were working in the kitchen stealing food sort of wrestled with the idea that you know, what they were doing is that they're stealing for themselves and that means that someone else is gonna have a little bit less you know what can I do how do you look at this is this sort of the darwinian survival of the fittest or do you have some sort of obligation you know if you don't steal it maybe someone else will but your food usually consisted of bread. That was pretty much it, and some watery soup. You, though, you know, the more you worked, the more food you got, and the bread was often wasn't really the best. Some accounts that it was just black and hard, not the soft and white bread that I think of. Luxuries like tobacco and tea were kind of seen as gold. Prisoners were given sugar and sometimes maybe like a, a protein, but it was your calories definitely were not up to what. The uh, yeah, what the uh, what we think is usually good today, prisoners would um talk of making something called a bread paste, which I think was just water and maybe something else mixed with some bread together. And there was also a question at the time, you know, do you eat all your food at once or do you save it? You know, eat a little bit throughout the day. If you do the latter option, then you risk it being stolen. And then you have nothing. Another privilege was that anybody who had a spoon and a bowl was served served first. It's usually meant that you got all sort of the good fatty soup because that's sort of floating at the top. One prisoner said that they probably survived because that they had a bowl and a spoon, so they had that privilege. Another prisoner made his his life in the camp or he he gained privileges because he, he stole some aluminum, and I think he made spoons out of it in exchange for other items. So after a nice bread paste and some cold water, you'd go back to work, in whatever favorable or unfavorable condition, Dmitry Bastrolatov writes about a winter storm that he had to work in. Quote, In that instant, the wind began a wild and terrifying howl forcing us down to the ground the snow swirled up into the air and everything disappeared the lights of the camp the stars the aurora borealis and we were left alone in a white fog opening our arms wide clumsily and slipping and stumbling falling and supporting one another we tried as quickly as possible to find the road back suddenly a thunderclap burst above our heads i scarcely managed to hang on to my fellow climber when a violent stream of ice snow and rocks began gushing toward our faces the swirling snow made it impossible to breathe, impossible to see, end quote. Now, not only was working a roll of the dice, but also punishment, kind of camp, would, wouldn't be complete without some sort of isolation chamber. This was usually reserved for people who did not want to work, so they would be locked up in their tiny little cell without any sort of contact and given a tiny, tiny amount of ration. Ration's not usually enough to survive on. Lev Resgon writes about Count Tisviewicz, who was a refuser, and he was brought and asked if he wanted to work. Quote, Every morning before the prisoners were marched out of camp to work and the columns of prisoners were lined up in the yard, two warders would fetch Tisviewicz from the punishment cell. Gray stubble covered his face and shaved head, and he was dressed in remnants of an old overcoat and and pooties. The camp security officer would begin his daily educational exercise. Well, you fucking count, you stupid fucking fuck, are you going to work or not? No, sir, I cannot work, the count replied in an iron-firm voice. Oh, so you can't work, you fuck? The security officer would publicly explain to the count what he thought of him, and of his close and distant relations, and what he would do to him in the very near future. This daily spectacle was a source of general satisfaction to the other camp's inmates." End quotes. Applebaum also writes of how much contact you could expect with the outside world, usually through mail. There were a lot of restrictions, and you were considered lucky if a camp boss would let your family even visit. Your letters would always be checked and read most of the time because they were always worried about spying or giving you know unwanted information out into the world. So most of the time, receiving a package is amazing, an amazing experience. I know I always get excited for something I ordered, so imagine how they felt. Applebaum again writes of Georgie Zinoff, who received a package, quote, During the hardest war years and the most difficult northern camps, packages could determine the difference between life and death. One memoirist, the actor Georgie Zinoff, claims literally to have been saved by two packages. His mother mailed them from Leningrad in 1940, and he received them three years later. At the most critical moment, when I was hungry, having lost all hope, was slowly dying of scurvy. At that time, Zunoff was working in the camp bathhouses in Kolyma, being too weak to work in the forest. Upon hearing that he had received the two packages, he at first did not believe it. Then, convinced that it was true, he asked the chief bath attendant for permission to walk the six miles to the central camp administration's headquarters, where the storeroom was located. After two and a half hours, he turned back. I had difficulty travelling another kilometre. Then, seeing a group of camp bosses on a sleigh, a fantastic thought crossed my mind: what if I asked to go with them? They said yes, and what happened next was as if in a dream. Zinov got to the sleigh, rose, rode the six miles, and got off the sleigh with great difficulty, helped by the NKVD boss, and entered the storeroom, claimed his three year old packages, and opened them up. And Zinov writes: Everything that had been put in there, in the package, the sugar, the sausage, lard, candy, onions, garlic, cookies, crackers, cigarettes, chocolate, along with the wrapping paper in which each thing had been packed during the three years following me from address to address, had become mixed up, as if it was in a washing machine, turning finally into one hard mass with the sweet smell of decay, malt, tobacco, and the perfume of candy. I went on the table, took a knife to a piece of it, and in front of everyone, almost not chewing, hastily gulped, not distinguishing taste or smell, fearing, in a word, that someone would interrupt me or take it away from me. End For part four, I'll continue on with the human experience of the camp. There is still much to cover, but I am reaching that mark. So, I'm going... So, from going from the arrests to the prisons, to the interrogation, to the transport... Into the beginning of the labor camp experience. I hope I have captured the life of the camp and what it was like to be living through this time period. Next episode, I'll continue on where I left off and, dis- and continue to discuss the human experience further. So, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy, please share the podcast with a friend. You know, your family member, your grandma, you know, whoever, your dog. Follow the podcast and rate it wherever you listen. I apologize for any names that I've mispronounced. Please do not come and hang me by my neck. I try my best. Thanks to Patrick for the support. And to everyone who has given me feedback. I really, really appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter at ideas underscore influence. And thank you. So much for listening. Cheers.